Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. Thanks a lot for joining us here this afternoon back at our traditional time for another live edition of Midrats. And if you are with us live, if you don't, this is the time to do it. Go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the page. That's where you will find the chat room. And join in because on episodes like we're going to have today in this format, we pay even more attention to the chat room because today is a Midrat Melee. We do not have guests. It's just Eagle One and myself. We've got our list of topics but we'd be really interested if there's something that you would like for us to address. And we already got Jack there standing athwart the quarter deck, uh, welcoming you on board the chat room if you are so inclined. And if you got a runoff uh, during the course of the show, I always like to remind everybody, if you don't already, go over to iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and go ahead and subscribe to MidRet. It's for free. And then that way we'll be waiting for you at a time better convenient to your schedule. And Eagle One, happy Sunday to you. Hey, Sal, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. <laughs> uh, well, I just said, to share with the guest, I was being, I was being uh, hazed by my co-host before the show started because I told him I had to go get my tea, uh, which is a fine Himalayan white tea. Uh, with honey for sweetening. So uh, if I if I seem a little fancier than usual today, I'm drinking tea and I should not be shamed for it. Supporting Amazon in all its various forms, including Whole Paycheck. <laughs> I didn't buy it at Whole Paycheck, I promise. Um, there are other places you can buy it. And if they want me to say their name, they've got to sponsor MidRat, which I don't think we've ever had a paid sponsor, but it's never too late to start. <laughs> Yeah, that would be interesting. Like, no, we can't get Lockheed Martin. We can't get Raytheon. But darn it, we got, we had this little tea growing family in Nepal who sponsored us for thirty cents an episode. So yeah, we have sponsors. Um, hey, uh, I kind of gave folks a, a little peek um, of some of the topics we talked about today, and I know you have your your list of happy things. Good news is is our interest list usually overlap. But I thought we would kick things off. <laughs> Speaking of the military industrial complex is, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but uh, where, in all the money we've spent the last few years, where was Maritime Infrastructure Week? Because I'm kind of channeling my inner Brian McGrath here, because I know this is one of his rage topics. But um, I don't remember, uh, besides, you know, you, me, and the rest of the kids in the cheat seats, uh, banging drums and advocating for this, but the well in the background, if ever, the lobbying for what everybody realizes, and especially when light with what we've seen in the Ukraine uh, 
Russo-Ukrainian war, whatever they're officially calling it nowadays, has showed us about the importance of production, inventory, and uh, industrial capacity, that there wasn't a big push to get some funding for that. And the CNO made an interesting comment. There's a, a couple of things. First of all, if, and you know, we talked about it in previous episodes um, ago, a uh, post I wrote about the failure of the institutions, and one of the institutions I talked about was our uniformed leadership, is it's, it's very subtle, there's, but there's not great advocacy there for it. And you know, he made a comment to Justin Katz back on the 14th, quote, this is the CNO, the defense industrial base right now is strained. And a lot of that has to do with the workforce as we recover from COVID. He later says right now, Right now, we are not at a point where the industrial base is supporting three destroyers a year. Right now, we're somewhere between two and a half. And so we want to make sure we're going to put that money down against shipbuilding. So the capacity is actually there, so the money is well spent. End of quote. That's about the firmest advocacy I've heard um, from somebody in uniform for our infrastructure. That doesn't even begin to do... Uh, I don't know how many tons of ink have been spilled about our inability to maintain what submarines we have. Uh, we all know about the maintenance issues, ability to get time um, when the ships are ready for maintenance to get the maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, besides these relatively strong but really imbalanced, they're almost meaningless words uh, by the CNO, uh, who is our best advocate that has access to a lever of power for our naval industrial base, because I I haven't seen it. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't think we have one. And the problem is that we've discussed before too is that the Navy has communities within itself that fight each other for the budget. So everybody perceives that their whatever going to happen is that their slice of the pie is going to be diminished. And as a result, we get this. Um, perpetual <laughs> uh, it, we're like Sisyphus trying to push that rock up the, the hill and we, you know you're, you're working as hard as you can but you're not making any progress sometimes because we're always and you end up with this group think the idea that you know we have to have destroyers we can't have uh, small combatants uh, smaller than destroyer maybe 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 a frigate or two will work uh, you know and and to give former some former CEOs CNOs credit or whoever was in charge in those days uh, the, the concept behind the LCS wasn't totally wrong. It just turned out that, as, as we've discussed many times, that the execution was extremely poor because it didn't meet the need that was that was thought of by uh, the people who thought up the idea for for smaller, faster uh, uh, ships, which would be heavily armed for their weight. So now you know you, you go back to. I was reading what I, every now and then I got this urge to go read the letters to the editor basically and, and proceedings magazine from the Naval Institute. And one was by a, a junior officer, a uh, reserve officer named Rath, who, who uh, doesn't understand why we're not uh, spending our money wisely on, on small integrated units where you take uh, four and he uses uh, 90 foot long sort of, large PT boats, but I assume missile-armed uh, fairly fast, and combine them with four 
uh, aircraft of some kind, lightweight but heavily armed. You know, I'm thinking air tracker kind of stuff. Maybe maybe he has something else in mind. And and you create these these uh, mini task force that can throw uh, 20 uh, guided missiles out if they are anti-ship missiles out, maybe more, and uh, and they can be all be integrated because we certainly have the technology to do this. And I'm thinking, well, you know. Out of the mouths of babes, we've we've discussed this before. Why are we not building? Uh, if you know your 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 big, great big ships are a huge target, why aren't you building a lot of smaller ships and make the targeting more difficult and make them as lethal as you can given their weight? And yeah, you have to tell people who are going to serve in these things. Oh, by the way, and the American public. Oh, by the way, uh, uh, these ships are expendable, and you, we can do what we can to try and make them as as uh, you know, give some kind of escape capsule for the crew or something. But you know, they're they're not uh, they're not bulletproof assets, and they're gonna they're gonna get crunched. But isn't it better to lose a ship with uh, ten sailors on it than to lose a ship with with four hundred or five hundred sailors on it? So, I think that you know, um, that advocacy needs to there needs to be somebody in in with the levers of power to get off the kick on every ship has to be big. Every ship has to be really expensive. We, you know, I don't want to tailor our fleet to fight a blue water battle when we're not, not going to see a blue water battle. I don't think it's going to be. And, and in in the, in the, in the literals, and it's going to be a very nasty, hard uh, fight. And it's going to have to take a lot of young men who are willing and women who are willing to go in arms way and, uh, and, and, Take on the challenge of, of small ships engaging uh, in, in hiding behind islands, uh, coming out, popping out to shoot, and, and running away until you and, until you know you've achieved your objectives. And uh, I think that's that's part of the problem. Uh, the other part of the problem is that we. And I'm going to go back to an article that uh, Bob Work wrote. Uh, uh, the, oh, what was it called? Hang on, I got it right here somewhere. Um, a slavish devotion to presence, and I know we're going to talk about presence, but but his point was in this article, among other things, was that presence in itself has become a missionary of the Navy, but we don't define what that means necessarily. You know, what somehow it's it's, and and what is done is create for the for the COCOMs. Uh, they say, well, this presence is great. I want an aircraft carrier. I want uh, a uh, amphibious. Uh, group out here, and I want, and I want, I want. Well, we don't have the fleet <laughs> to do that all the time, and we don't have anybody in the civilian side of the house saying, "No, you got to cut back on your demands because you're wearing our fleet out." And somebody, uh, this is, I guess, the long-winded way of saying somebody needs to be in charge of saying no to the COCOMs. We we have to uh, keep our fleet where we can surge it. But we don't need to keep a presence everywhere with the with the massive aircraft carriers. But I got these really small boys. I'd be happy to let you have, and they can play around the islands, and we'll support them with some kind of tender, and and uh, that'll that'll help you out. So, I think. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'll say you know, and the numbers issue is spot on, and in some ways, uh, and you can and presence mission ties into that. Um, and we'll talk, like, like you said, we'll talk about presence here in a little bit, but it, it even ties into this conversation. It, it taps into a long thread in our nation's history. You know, in, in Jerry Hendricks's 15-year-old 
article on influence squadrons, it ties into that as well. But I think part of our problem is um, is we almost have institutional attention deficit disorder in this regard. Is the U.S. Navy, like most navies, uh, we suffer from uh, a peacetime plague of we haven't had real-world combat examples uh, that we can reference off. So we suffer by a few things. It's inside the Beltway advocacy. Are you a funded program? Are you, you know, an unfunded priority? You know, who in Congress likes you? And also the the war game fallacy. I always get an itchy eye when, um, itchy and twitchy, so to speak, when people say, well, we conducted a war game in X. Anybody who run war games knows that you can get the results you want based upon your assumption and the bias of the judges, how it's structured. There's as many ways to do a war game as there is to bake bread, uh, and they don't perfectly see the future. And what's hard to war game, especially if you don't even war game it at all, is what you exactly mentioned, which is the destabilizing ability to have small ships harassing the enemy when they're too busy focused on the big ones. And there's a great American tradition. I mean, it goes back thousands of years, but uh, the War of 1812 and the Chesapeake, and even during our revolution, where we uh, leveraged small vessels against ships of the line who couldn't move <laughs> because there was no wind, um, and of course, World War II with the PC boats. And there have been some people who have you know, half-page long uh, logarithmic equations explaining why the PT boats were of no use during the Second World War, but I don't think that it – you pick the variables you want to. And the concept work, works pretty darn well, and you can look at some of our prior CNOs. I think Kelso was one. I reserve the right to be wrong there. But uh, during the 1973 war, I read a couple of really interesting accounts that our uh, Asheville-class PGs, basically patrol boats with nothing but a gun on it, skippered by lieutenants, were a nuisance to the Soviets because they would just pop up, you know, go, oh, hi, how you doing? They weren't much of a threat to anybody, but they provided good intel. They were harassing. They were distracting. They actually got some good use out of it. And that experience in the Mediterranean uh, helped inform the, uh, the PHM, the Pegasus hydrofoil. Um, and you can argue hydrofoils one way or another, but I think you can draw a direct line to that, to like the modern Swedish Visby Corvette, and that uh, meets that very successful tool that we have in, we've made the decision that we don't want to do. Because in peacetime, you, you'll hear the arguments that, first of all, they'll say, well, they're in no use because uh, we war-gained X, or they're in no use because... I have my missile salvo equation, et cetera, and so forth. Or they can't survive in the modern battlefield. Or my, my least favorite excuse, it's too hard of a career path. If we get these lieutenants and lieutenant commanders command opportunities that early on, then it's going to screw up their career, which it's more of a, <laughs> a militant, militant problem than it should be a Navy problem. But, the, but those are the arguments that, that we see. And it's kind of like getting rid of riverine. Uh, 
when we actually have a real war show up, what do people scream for? We don't have enough small ships. We don't have enough rivering. We don't have um, enough ability to have proper presence, whether it's in the Baltics or whether it's off North Korea. So we force mode the system by overusing our ships, overusing our personnel, taking shortcuts, and that's how you have unqualified people on bridges. You have CICs where every other piece of machinery is uh, CAS-repped, including the heads that people have to pee in bottles strewn all over the place. And that's how you got the collisions of 2017, and that's how you have an amphib pulling into Kiel to do a presence mission that looks like a Soviet trawler circa 1990. Uh, these things should be straightforward. It's just who's going to advocate for that. And I guess that's a, almost a show in itself is I've come to terms and accepted, especially in the course of the last nine months, that at least until something happens uh, in the executive branch by either uh, a change in perspective or a change of ownership, that navalists, whether you are our, our friend John Conrad, who, who's beaten the gong hard every day of the week, uh, Sal Mercagliano, who if uh, you don't watch some of his YouTube uh, videos about the, the state of our merchant fleet and issues revolving around it, bad on you, uh, and other navalists, we just have to kind of have the mouth, uh, I hate to use him, but he's always a good example, have the mindset of Mao during the long march. Uh, where we're not on the ascendant, but we can get concentrated, we can get focused, and we can wait for an opportunity to to step in and what needs to be done. We're we're going to be in the long march for a couple of years because I don't see, at least in the executive branch or in the uniformed leadership, uh, any advocates to be able to move the ball forward, uh, which for a maritime and aerospace power like the United States should be fairly straightforward to do, but it's it's just not going to happen. Yeah, well, we need we need somebody to think. God forbid, I hate. I'm mean, going to use the expression to think outside the box, uh, the big gray box. And you know, Wayne Hughes and his work uh, talked about these because uh, he'd gone up against them in the Mediterranean in some exercise he was involved in. Uh, these small, fast missile uh, ships. And uh, the, the, uh, perfect for some environments, not perfect for big blue water fighting, but uh, the, the technology is there now that that uh, almost a rowboat can be fitted out with a with a missile that can be guided to its target pretty accurately. It's no longer the torpedo run where you're kind of aiming the boat and firing the torpedo and hoping it hits something on a PT boat. Um, so, you know, some of those issues have gone away and I, it, it, I don't I think we need more destroyers and I think we need frigates but I don't think we need there's there's no reason not to take a billion and a half dollars and say okay I'm going to defer this building this the uh, destroyer and I want you know a hundred uh, whatever you want to call them uh, um, small uh, and you used the word a minute ago you know that the, dang it I want I want attack boats. I want surface attack boats, heavily armed, and I want them supported by some kind of aircraft that can be operated pretty easily off some remote field. You know, and that's I think this this guy, uh, 
uh, Rath in his little, little piece <laughs> comment on in proceedings was right. I mean, what do we got to lose in trying it? And then the other side of that is we we need to look at the expenditure of, of weapons. And, and we've talked about this in, in light of Ukraine. People don't realize uh, how fast you go through your weapon load. And it, I had to tell you that as an, I was on an ammunition ship off Vietnam, and, I, you know, we were rearming everybody that was shooting stuff. We ran out of ammo uh, at one point uh, during the 72 after the 72 Eastern Invasion, we didn't, we couldn't carry enough, and there wasn't enough in Subic Bay for us to reload. So they're flying in on C5s, uh, five-inch ammo and other kinds of ammo, and and we were cross every time an ammo ship left the line to go back and reload in in Subic, we would meet up with a AOE or an a, another AE and transfer everything we had to them, so they wouldn't run out uh, until somebody could get back online. You know, you go through this stuff uh, like a like a little kid eating candy. It's just it, it's not um, we're not patient with our use of weapons and we're seeing that uh, you know if every weapon was killed that, that that's one thing but every weapon is not a kill and you got sometimes you have to fire three four five to get the desired effect and of course my experience is related to naval gunfire which um, although it can be very accurate uh, you tend to you tend to shoot a lot more than you probably need to if you had uh, better guidance systems on things, but it's a lot less expensive than or was a lot less expensive than shooting missiles at people. Anyway, the point is yeah, we, need to, people, we need to work on rearming, <laughs> rearming and equipping our our forces with the stuff they need, the current forces, and then we can worry about the rest of the stuff, uh, you know, the building of the ships and all that. But I would also get a bunch of small things out there as fast as we can. Uh, I don't care if they're manned by four or five or ten people, but they don't need to be huge. They just need to be uh, operating now. Yeah, and, and it's, it's funny where they talk about it's not good for the blue water fight. It's like, okay, that that's good. And, and our Virginia-class submarines aren't good for the shallow water fight either, <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to be blunt about it. Um, you, need, you need a diverse toolbox. And, you know, the, the good lieutenant who wrote that article, if somebody you know, got on the horn to him and said, well, you know, if what you did would be really put, difficult to put you on path for, um, you know, captain command, he'd probably look at you like, I don't care. <laughs> it's like if I have a successful command tour as a lieutenant and that damages my career down the road, then, um, okay, well, that's the way it goes. Most of them just plain do not care. There's a lot of... Uh, ducks picking ducks where you have because I've been in the room with these people I've served with them and we all have I, I won't we all know the type uh, you have a peer who knows your fit reps better than you do and knows where everybody in his competitive group is ranking even those that are on the other coast in different commands you have those people and a lot of those people in our system they respond well to our present system of incentives and disincentives and they're the ones that talk to lieutenants who just want an opportunity to command. And they don't really give a damn if they're not going to make captain command or commander command because they had command as a lieutenant when they plan on getting out at age 32 anyway and do something else. Uh, but, the, you know, the comments you made about going in the Subic and going back and forth, um, when you talk to – and there's some good open source intel on this, but the best intel is if you talk to uh, – an older Royal Navy officer who has pretty good secondhand information for those that served in the Falklands is people underestimate how much specifically ASW, but I think it'll apply to 
uh, air-to-air missiles, you will go through. Uh, you're not going to conserve or wait for the perfect uh, target solution when you have something barreling down on you that's you know inside their ability to crack the back of your ship or to uh, set everybody on fire in the course of, of two seconds. Uh, you will shoot and shoot and shoot, and that, that inventory uh, is going to be a challenge, especially when people want to go back to reload. Uh, what if there is no Subic Bay that we can use? Or what if we were planning on using Subic and Yokosuka, but uh, they're no longer you know, physically there? Uh, that makes the challenge even greater. And I, I think there are some people who are starting to think and act along those lines, but uh, I think a little bit more uh, fear needs to be put in the heart of people because we've, we've been at peace so long that we have very efficient systems. And as we all saw on the civilian side of the sector, when you have a very efficient and very effective, when not under stress, supply chain system, you know, things are less expensive and you can get more of them for less bucks. But the minute they're put under stress or one or two nodes are degraded, the whole system falls apart. Uh, and I think a, a good little warning on you know, my favorite phrase, we are a maritime and aerospace power. And I mention that aerospace for a reason, because it is a comparative advantage of ours. But Lieutenant General Saltzman over at U.S. Space Force, even though he's really Air Force, we all know that, uh, he and uh, Senator Kane uh, from Virginia, who's been very good on a lot of defense issues, kind of had a little back and forth um, on the traffic jam right now um, that we are coming up on just on our launch facilities. So you can add to the list of submarine repair and shipyard repair. There's not much flex in the system, especially when um, – more and more companies and more and more civilian launch facilities uh, are used because it's more affordable to put uh, bespoke satellites in orbit, that uh, we need to look at more launch places. Uh, that not even begin to talk about redundancy for, for things that might happen at war. With uh, You don't need nuclear weapons anymore to reach the other side of the world and take something that's fragile out. But uh, I just went through my head uh, – all of the regulatory requirements it must take to put a new launch facility, whether you know your Wallops Island is always there. We have um, that launch facility outside of LA has been there forever. Cape Canaveral, that whole infrastructure has been there forever, but we need more locations. And uh, if, if we have somebody like Lieutenant General Saltzman today talking about a traffic jam for what ranges and launch facilities you have right now, uh, if we're not building and it's going to take 10 to 15 years to bring something online, where are we going to be in uh, 2040, 2035, given the trend that we're seeing low Earth orbit and even further, how important that is, not just militarily, but economics? Now, it's it's frustrating, uh, you know. I see that uh, John Conrad is in our comments section. You know, yeah, we've got we're facing a lot of issues, all of which we seem to be have shot ourselves in the foot on. I mean, it, the the energy crisis is is not an, a crisis of of a lack of. Of, of assets, it's somebody said we're not going to do that anymore here. We're going to go with this other program. You know, that's great. It's it's like. Um, 
<laughs> but it, it doesn't make any sense. You can't replace something that's working for you with something that is going to be new and, and interesting uh, down the road until you're sure that will work under all the conditions that the current system works under. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I am, as an old oil and gas guy, I am appalled by what we've done to our energy system and wh- why, why we're, we're paying the price for something that we didn't have to do. You know, it's great if you want solar and, and wind power and all that stuff, but you didn't have to shut everything off uh, until you had it in place where we were, were sure it was working. And, you know, as the Germans have learned, I think they've learned, it's a little hard to tell, you know, if you shut down your, 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 power, your nuclear power plants uh, <laughs> and you're going to rely on gas from Russia, that's probably a really bad idea. I mean, you know, we... We've, we've been over this path before. We, you talk about National Infrastructure Week. You know where the where the the shipyard's going to be. We got one shipyard building a uh, cutters for the Coast Guard that they're proud of the fact they're in a parking lot somewhere with a, with a crane. You know I don't know how those cutters are going to turn out. They may be great, but that that's not the kind of shipyard that I'm used to seeing. And not all of them have to be, you know, the the, the huge ones in in uh, Newport News and uh, where they're turning out those carriers. I mean, those are those are massive investments by Huntington Engels, and and they're tremendous. But not every ship has to be built that way. So we get we've got uh, you know the the bath yard up in Maine. We've got the people down at Pascagoula. Uh, I'm not. I don't think we have any major. We have the NASCO people, I guess, in in San Diego. We're building basically converted merchant halls uh, for us. But, you know, we need to be thinking uh, uh, longer range than that. We need to be developing all kinds of stuff that that is um, available to us if we just think about it instead of uh, and, and taking the short-term political view of this is going to look good to the people who vote for me uh, rather than this is going to be good for the country. And what's good for the country is we have to have an adequate naval uh, uh, structure. We have to have an adequate merchant marine because if we're going to rely on the Chinese uh, merchant fleet to deliver the goods, that's an issue for us. We're discovering our port loading capabilities. I mean, it's good that in some ways that we've converted uh, – we're no longer taking everything through L.A. and, and Long Beach, but uh, you know there are other ports that are that should be major ports that are that are being worked. So Norfolk and and Savannah and uh, Charleston, I guess, are getting the and maybe Jacksonville for all I know are getting the the uh, some of the work that used to be spread out. Well, you know, when we need to develop that capacity even more. Um, you know, I'm sure that the but again. We need to load up all the stuff we we think we're going to need to fight a war, and we need to we need to be thinking something other than huge gray hulls. I'm, I remember when we talked to Captain Hughes. One of the things he talked about was that when we keep building larger and larger ships, like you know, the economies of scale say, "Oh, that's great because uh, we can carry all this stuff on one massive ship. It'll be it'll be wonderful." But then, as he pointed out, yeah, well, you lose that one of those ships. What have you lost? And uh, I think we need to really think smaller. Uh, uh, more fighter plane like uh, seagoing ships supported by uh, 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 you know destroyer tender kind of uh, ships and, and somebody also pointed out we could use the uh, those those uh, semi submersible marine corps floating deck things to has has kind of tenders for the, for these small ships so 
I just that's that's we've got to be smarter than we're being right now. And uh, I know it's you know it's crazy political season. We need we need more people in Congress uh, who are paying attention to what's going on, and we need to cut back uh, on this Goldwater Nichols thing where the COCOMs get the final say on where your fleet's going to be deployed. We can't have 130 ships deployed when we only have like 300 ships. <laughs> that doesn't give us enough to, time to turn around, and it's, and it's killing our carriers. We need to be a lot smarter than we're being right now. Yeah, the, uh, the warning by Wayne Hughes about the, and again, it goes back to that efficiency versus effectiveness. The big ships are, from an accountant's point of view, quite efficient, but they're not very effective at war because it's, it's no good if your task group says we can't lose a single ship if we do, we can't accomplish the mission, then you're setting yourself up for strategic failure. We do, however, you know, I actually have, have something positive here, um, as opposed to being this merry dark cloud always, that you know, we're always wondering, are we, are we a learning institution? Are we learning any lessons? And in some way, yes, it's a little frustrating because I think you and I were making these points 15 years ago, but, but that's okay. Again, you know, let's touch base with the CNO because he always gets attention when he speaks. But he said some real because there's one thing about you know building a certain quantity of ships, but what is what what is the quality of thinking that's going into it? And we we know the story about uh, the age of transformationalism and the LCS and the and the early and the um, uh, the Zoom Walt et cetera and so forth. But um, you know, you wonder are we really learning? Are we injecting our lessons into what we're doing around. And the CNO made some comments that I, I think so. Um, and this, this came out last week um, with uh, a, a former guest of Midrats, uh, Bradley Pennison. He did an, I did an interview with him. And he specifically started talking in response to the constellation, the new, the new frigate. And a little extended quote here from the CNO. Quote, I think it's important the Navy maintain the lead on the design, he said. So what we've done with DDGX is we've brought in the private shipbuilders so that they can help inform the effort. So it's a team, but it's Navy-led. So both companies that produce DDGs are involved in that initial design. Our intent is to go build a mature design, so that would mean more than 80% complete point where we actually go to bend metal. So going to do something that we're going to pay co close attention to, to because it actually drives down technical risk, he said. Technical risk has been a challenge for us, whether it's been Zoomwalt, LCS, or the Ford Carrier in particular. With those three builds, we have accepted technical risk, and it has cost us in terms of those ships, not only on budget, but also on schedule. End of long quote. And he was talking about DDGX, but that was right after a combination of what they've been doing with FFG-62. So that's the Navy senior uniformed leader being pretty clear the fact of the importance of acknowledging technical risk that we ignored in the first decade of this century and also looking at putting into our ships mature equipment. And I made the comment um, earlier um, last week that you know, we could learn something and you read you read some of the commentary at the time about the Spruance. It's like, you know, this ship is huge, it doesn't have any weapons. It's because 
they left white space there for the weapons that were still in development, but they didn't force, they didn't say, you know, you've got to put in your VLS cells today. Well, they're not ready. It's like, well, put them in anyway. That would have been a huge problem. That's kind of what we did with, with, with Zumwalt. They put them in later. Um, so, you know, taking proven technology and putting it into a new hole, you know, that takes care of a lot of the technology risk. I think we are slow rolling DDG-X um, quite a bit, uh, which I think is unfortunate. I've heard some indications and warning that it is kind of covered with good idea fairies. They're, they're trying to um, lever off of her so she doesn't get that technical that technology risk that the CNOs worry about. So I found something a little bit positive there. Now, if we could expand the acknowledgement and the action to avoid technology risk and apply that to those other risks that we are assuming away, uh, that's a positive sign. But we'll need to fo follow through and see what the execution is on them. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it was an interesting uh, week in the sense that the the uh, Navy's concept of presence as a mission uh, was kind of taken a pounding by the by the uh, secretary uh, the office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, you want to discuss that because part of the problem is not the Navy's problem about sure. presence. Now it now it's become the the COCOM problem. I actually have print-offs and highlights on this exact topic. I'm very excited. Um, i, I got to give full credit to, um, again, former Mid-Rats guest, um, Brent, Brent Sadler. He um, had a nice little series on this last week that I, I bookmarked to come back to, because I, I hope to talk, talk to you about that today. Is, you know, it's really strange, but I, the Secretary of Defense until very recently, was a four-star Army guy. That's his worldview. Um, his deputy, Kath Hicks, not a big fan of sea power over other, quote, priorities, unquote. Acknowledge it. And what was interesting is uh, some one of the guys that do does get it, that we've talked about quite often, and he does have access to a lever of power, and if the Republicans take the House, uh, he'll have an even uh, larger hand on it. That's Representative Mike Gallagher. Is uh, and I'll, I'll read what he put into the NDAA here in a second. But I found what was interesting and what Brent led with was OSD's response to what Re Representative Gallagher wants to change in the NDAA, uh, specifically about the President's mission. Quote. The department objects to the House provision because it would dilute the U.S. Navy's focus on combat operations at sea at a time when peer adversaries' rapid military modernization, including naval modernization, and increasing aggressive foreign policies require a strong U.S. emphasis on the development and modernization of U.S. naval forces, tactics, forces, and capabilities for the effective prosecution of naval warfare. DOD believes proposed language in Section 912 does not align with DOD's strategic guidance. U.S. Navy must maintain a strong strategic focus on combat operations at sea and effective prosecution of war. End of long quote. And here's what's funny. Here's what they're so energized about. But words mean things. And Representative Gallagher and his staff and those that are working with them from both parties, they understand that. So the Secretary of Defense 
got all energized, and you're an attorney, so you will appreciate this. If you actually look at second, Section 912, and you look at the language, what got them, uh, and do words mean things, they aren't important, but it, it changes section, section uh, 8062 Alpha of Title 10 U.S. Code, amended and saying, in the second sentence, by striking primarily and inserting, quote, for the peacetime promotion of the national security interest and prosperity of the United States, and in the third sentence, by striking for the effective prosecution of war and asserting, quote, for the duties described in the preceding sentence, which was the peacetime promotion of the national security interest and prosperity of the United States. That, that is a hook that people can hang on getting money and the right assets to do in peacetime, which I found ironic with the, with the uh, with OSD's response because one thing we know, one purpose of the, the President's mission, and you know, one of my favorite examples is right after World War II when we sent one of our Iowa-class battleships between Greece and Turkey telling them, hey, you, you kids, stop. Um, a well- funded and executed president's mission can't prevent you from going to war. It can, it can prevent things from escalating out of control. It puts a message. It creates, especially for a nation that desires itself to be a global power, it reminds people, it reminds our enemy that we're there, and it reminds that our friends that we're with them. And if you cannot do a presence mission, if all you do is if you stay, stay on CONUS and do your little fleet X's and comp two X's and you never go forward, people forget that you're there. And then you will find yourself in a war and you'll be clawing yourself across the Pacific or the Atlantic or through the Med, losing thousands of people and untold number of ships, you and your allies, because in peace, you didn't remind people that we're there. Again, one encouraging point is they actually are, are calling, uh, uh, though they don't mention the People's Republic of China by name, uh, they do call it a peer adversary, not a pacing adversary <laughs> or a rising power. So that was nice to see. And the final note that this is kind of Brent's way of, of turning the knife after he slid it through the couple of ribs, I think most people will agree that whether it's domestic or foreign policy, the, the greatest national strategic document is our Constitution. And um, our friend Claude Barabay likes to quote this on a regular basis, and I think it's the subtitle, or was it the actual title of uh, Jerry Henricks' book? I think it's the actual title. Um, in the U.S. Constitution, it says that um, we are to define, quote, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations to provide and to provide and maintain a navy, end quote. You cannot do your constitutional duty to punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations if you are not present on the high seas. And when we were still a nation wet behind the ear, we had our frigates forward especially in the Mediterranean and the Pacific, all the time specifically to do that. So literally to the founding of our republic, it's been the strategic mission of the Navy to do presence. And if we have forgotten that for the last two generations, 
that's bad on us. So uh, Gallagher's language, I think, is closing a loophole for the Navy and for the civilian leadership of the Navy avoiding its, its presence mission. And uh, that, I think that sets a good template because laws and words mean things that if the executive branch won't do their job, that the legislative branch uh, doing those clever legal things that you lawyers do can help paint people in the corners where they're obligated to do it. So it, it was just really interesting to see. Are you still there, or do we have a mute button issue? No, Admiral, Admiral Fogo and and uh, Bob Worker have kind of pushed this over. But one of the problems that is faced, I'll, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. Presence is great, and but it, there is a cost involved, and the cost is. Uh, the number of ships you have deployed and, and how hard that is on the ships and the crews and all that. Now, what has happened is that because the COCOMs have a, send the demand signal the, of, of what they want, and the Navy has been going, cheery aye we'll do what we can to meet your needs, we've been sending ships when they didn't need to be the ships we were sending. So if you send a carrier when a destroyer would do, um, you know, you're, you're misusing the carrier. If you send a destroyer when a when a PG would do, um, uh, you're you're misusing the destroyer. You know, and we've I, I've been discussing this since they were doing the piracy ops of Somalia. I mean, uh, we had cruisers and and uh, destroyers out there, and I think we even had a carrier for a while out there. You know, totally unnecessary for the threat that was that was there. Uh, but somebody was demanding the presence of such ships. And, and, you know, the Navy's got to say, we're not sending another carrier. There's a fact that somebody wrote an article on this recently. Don't send another carrier to the, to the Middle East. You know, what, we, do we need a carrier in the Arabian Gulf, the Persian Gulf, whichever one you prefer? You know, it is a, it is a very uh, small body of water, uh, relatively speaking, and uh, the, the threat of... Um, what the Iranians could do, uh, and whoever else is mad at us currently, uh, you know, it, you don't need your carriers trapped in, in, a, in a box like that. You want them where they can do their, their best work, which is much farther out at sea. And we're, we don't have ground troops now in, in massive numbers that we're supporting, so we don't need the, the short uh, cycle uh, that the carrier gives you of sending aircraft to, to provide close air support. Let's get the carriers out of there, put something else in there. You know, and I see they're, we're going to decommission the, the uh, PCs. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know what we're going to replace them with. I mean, I personally, I, as long as we got these LCSs, I'd send them over there. I don't think, you know, it's a minimum crew. They have, they're now, they're, they've got missiles and stuff on them, and there's air cover for them. So uh, let them go play there for a while. Uh, but keep the carriers out. Let let them rest. Let them. Let's rebuild them. Let's let them uh, recover. I mean, I, the condition of some of these ships when they come back from deployment is is uh, is hard. It's why they spend so much time in the yard when they do get a chance to go in the yard because we, we're overworking them. Let's let's uh, let's be sensible about saying no to the COCOMs, and that's you know that's got to be a civilian decision. 
because we respond to the uh, civilian leadership. But the Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary of Defense has to tell these COCOMs, no, uh, you don't need that. Somebody's got to be have a realistic view of what would do the job just as well as a, as a carrier. That's the argument. And, and what can you, can you pay for it? You know, and the whole thing, you know, a lot of these arguments, uh, sometimes I wonder, it's like, God, yeah, we, how many years have we been arguing this? But then you kind of you dig into it, and I realize that a lot of these arguments, uh, they're transgenerational. When I was looking up for things um, involving presence, I, I came across an article from the Naval War College Review in 1974 by a James F. McNulty, uh, who was a, I believe, lieutenant commander at the time. And no, he was a full commander at that point. He served in both the Korean War and Vietnam. And when I was looking him up, he actually passed away in 2002 at age 70 uh, down the road in Orlando. But his article in the uh, September-October 1974 issue of Naval War College Review is titled Naval Presence, the Misunderstood Mission. Uh, I will, uh, I'll try to find it after I get through prattling away and maybe copy the link into the chat room. But I just wanted to quote a couple things for you here. This is all sound familiar. It could be 2022. In late 1970, the Chief of Naval Operations set forth a new view of the missions of the United States Navy. Briefly, the mission's we're now seen to fall into four broad categories. First, strategic nuclear defense. Second, sea control. Third, projection of naval power. And fourth, naval presence. The evidence in the case of the naval presence mission indicates that very little has been done so far to amplify and build on that simply stated reality which justified its inclusion amongst the principal missions of the Navy. As a result, naval presence is, in an absolute as well as a relative sense, the least understood of the Navy's missions, both in the service and in the civil community. End of extended quote. Uh, I guess that's a transgenerational failure to, to tell that story. I guess in many ways, because it's, if you're looking for measures of effectiveness, if you prevent a conflict how do you know that? You know, you can't prove something that didn't happen didn't happen because of your actions. If you make close friends, you know, how can you directly, you know, draw a line to it? I think you can make, you know, indirect. There can be indirect results. For instance, you can indirectly measure the utter and complete failure of uh, the U.S. State Department in the fact that the Chinese are in bed in Guadalcanal now and, um, are making trouble in the Marshall Islands and throughout the Pacific because we just ignored it for so long. So I, I found that uh, very interesting comment by by McNulty. It, it could have been written yesterday. Yeah, and in, in, in his uh, slavish devotion for presence has nearly broken U.S. Navy. Work talks about the history of this forward presence. He blames uh, Samuel Huntington uh, for telling the Navy they needed to find a new a new mission set to explain to the American people why we why we have a Navy and and so they chose this this apparently chose this presence thing and that he kind of points to uh, uh, 
Vice Admiral. Well, come on, it'll be right here somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm still talking. <laughs> anyway, then, oh, Stansfield Turner. He says Vice Admiral Stansfield Turner is the one who said, "Oh yeah, we got to have this this uh, forward presence." And you know, then he goes through the history of from the sea and all the other for you know the other missions, cooperative strategy, you know why that has has continued. But I think he and Admiral Fogo and the pieces I've just put up on the on the uh, chat room, you know, the other piece is called uh, Forward Naval Presence. Uh, my God, here we go again. Forward naval presence, political, not military leadership problem. They, you know, they're reaching the same conclusion. You got to have presence. It, it does work to a certain extent. It's not the end all and be all of preventing wars or anything, but it, you know, it does help uh, maintain. If if the job is to maintain the sea lane, lanes of commerce, it, it does help do that. But uh, there is a there is a the problem with this Goldwater Nichols thing, where the COCOMs have have been able to have their way with uh, making the United States Navy do things it probably shouldn't be doing, and defining presence. If if there's no cost to you in asking for an aircraft carrier or an amphibious ready group with a, with a uh, you know air air capable uh, amphib ships. Uh, why wouldn't you ask for them? You'd be you'd be an idiot not to, and and for any possible contingency. I mean, you can always argue that I need this for uh, humanitarian intervention, uh, whatever, you know. So, uh, I guess my point is that we need to get uh, somebody needs to get a hold of the COCOMs and and have a little strong talk with them about what they should be asking for and how we're going to respond to it. And I don't know who's who's going to do that. I mean, you, you with cheery II. And when you're justifying the need for uh, carriers to maintain a forward presence, uh, maybe that's maybe that's the price you have to pay. But it seems to me where sometimes the cart is going before the horse, rather than looking at the the, uh, the threat, the real threat you're facing, that are not not presence driven, but actually driven by a potential uh, uh, enemy. I'm sorry, pure. Yeah, I think we. <laughs> You know, <laughs> we've we've created such a situation though that um, our present structure for the COCOMs, they all think they're pro councils. They think that their job is to uh, advocate for as much of the pie and attention that they can get. And uh, I I just think that there's it feeds into too many very human weaknesses. And until we change the structure. Uh, the, 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 you're not going to get different behavior on COCOMs writ large. You might have the, the occasional COCOM here and there that gets it, but uh, in the present system, they'll be punished for it because the other parties will not will not play nice. Uh, it's uh, it, we may have been trying with Goldwater Nichols and the COCOM structure to uh, get rid of inter-service rivalry. Well, we've replaced it with uh, inter-COCOM rivalry. So uh, we we need to to change the system. When you when you were talking about thinking about threats, though, I realized that you know we're getting you know last few minutes of the show. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about because um, you know you've got more time in the Pacific Fleet than I do, but the, the the Japanese presence there is nothing to play around with. 
may not be a huge nation compared to China in population, but a great economy, and they produce from quality kit. And you know, we imposed on them uh, uh, a certain, and they embraced it wholly, view towards national defense that only recently started to change. And it went a typo, but the, the, and the timeline is impressive that I think ties into what we were talking a bit about the CNO's comment towards the development of DDGX. But Japan is looking by 2027, which is pretty darn close, having or cutting steel on, if not having it close to the place water, a 20,000-ton warship. Just for reference for everybody, uh, an Arleigh Burke Flight 3, which is our, our fat guppy version of, uh, and I say that term with all the love and affection due to the Arleigh Burke class, um, that comes in just uh, a couple of hundred tons below a Ticonderoga class cruiser at 9,500 tons. Uh, the Zumwalt, um, that big heavy white elephant, uh, is at 15,600 tons. So it is um, you know, almost 30% larger more than the Zumwalt's. That's a battle cruiser, uh, or at least a heavy cruiser in many regards, and specifically that is facing uh, the People's Republic of China and their growing navy. I saw some interesting snarky comments about it reminded some people of World War II's the Yamoto and the um, Musashi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, were the two largest battleships. So maybe they're going to name those two ships after that. I don't think they will, though they are recycling names. But it does beg the question, um, if we've talked about smaller ships, but if you're looking at um, how many conventional prompt strike weapons you want to get moving from sea, uh, or if you needed uh, a mobile and survivable anti-ballistic missile shield, um, is a 20,000-ton battle cruiser, uh, is, that, is that the solution for the problem, or is that, that something else? I'm looking forward to seeing the design of it and the specs of it, which if they plan on have cutting steel at a minimum by 2027, maybe in the next 24 months we'll see something. But uh, that's an impressive warship right there. Yeah, and, it, and it's driven by, I think we, we talked about this before, it's driven by the fact that they didn't want to do Aegis ashore because uh, yeah. there were complaints about the, the dangers of, of having your missile defense uh, missiles going off over your own territory and the dangers of all the good things that that could attract. So, uh, you know, th it's a creative solution to the problem that they're they're going to put their Aegis stuff, their ballistic missile uh, counter uh, ships, uh, in I guess in the Sea of Japan somewhere. They don't have to you know they don't have to be anywhere specific because of the range of the of the weapons involved, but. You know, they want to get those at sea where they're mobile. They don't want to be fixed targets. A lot of it makes sense to me. The, the issue is uh, how much stuff, you know, how many missiles can you carry? How fast can you reload? Uh, because um, if, if, if the uh, pier that we're looking at is, is half savvy at all, he says, well, you know, you've got a ship that can launch a, a hundred uh, anti-ballistic missile missiles. Let me uh, 
let me put uh, you down for a thousand as for my target information. I, I'll just make those instead. You know, so it's and and you know they're also the Japanese have a problem. It's not just China they're worried about. They're worried about North Korea. Uh, you know they they uh, they live in a very dangerous part of the world, and you know the Russians are always there. Uh, it is I, I, you know it is time for them to do what they're. It, we're well past World War II, except in, in the dimmest memories of, of family lore. I hope, but some of those countries don't get along with each other. Uh, some of it's jealousy. Some of it's you know they're going to argue that long time ago bad things happened and and bad things did happen and the Japanese have owned up to most of it but uh, I, you know this I don't think two two ships I don't carry how many things they missiles they carry I don't think two is enough I think they need more than that but it's a good idea yeah well it might be might be one of those things that uh, once they get their foot in the door that they'll they'll keep producing them or uh, maybe use that hole to build another carrier because they're they're building incrementally larger aircraft carriers and i think it's a smart move too because one thing that japan has that we don't have is they are just a few minutes away from hundreds of short medium intermediate range ballistic missiles that can take out fixed facilities whether it's U.S. military or Japanese military facilities. So if things get hairy, uh, they need to distribute their risk, as we were talking about early on in the show, and get those things moving because they're more survivable. Uh, I think if you're you're on a good point there, though, that that if things got really furry, you need more than two because it takes three to make one, and um, you can look at what the, the unnatural acts to go back to the Falkland Islands that the British had to do to, to get those two carriers down south during the, the short-notice Falklands conflict, that uh, numbers mean something, which is also why uh, a lot of people are fighting really hard for our, our carriers is because they have 10 or 11 on paper, but uh, the days of being to, to surge carriers forward like we did for Desert Storm uh, are long past, and uh, it's uh, it's a big concern. But, hey, uh, I just realized we're a couple minutes over, as we are kind of catty-chaffy. Uh, All right. Chatty, it, obviously, the white, the white tea has gotten to White tea has gotten to you, <laughs> and, and and tied tied your tongue. Uh, and my my absence of cut this afternoon coffee has caused me to have those those uh, long pauses while I try to remember what the heck I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that that that's that's uh, a live podcast. What more you can do? But hey, it's been a great hour, and uh, I appreciate John and, and Jack and all those guys uh, that joined us in the in the chat room today. And, uh, hey, uh, we, we got a, a couple of possibles in the line for, for guests for next week. If not, uh, goodness knows, you and I could chat easily for another hour. So one way or another, uh, uh, I, I guess we'll be talking here in another week. I hope so. And I look forward and to thanks it. Again, every, yeah, same here. And thanks again, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. Until next time, hope you have a great Navy day. Molly wrote a neat reply to Irish Paddy O, saying Mike Maloney wants to 
marry me and so leave the strand and piccadilly or you'll be to blame for love has fairly drove me silly hoping you're the same I did.